0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 443 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Jamie Lee Searle tells Anne Morgan about unpicking books layer by layer, overcoming the fear of writing and the practicalities of the creative life. Jamie Lee Searle is a translator from German and Portuguese into English, with publications including Anna Kim's The Great Homecoming and Joachim B. Schmidt's Cowman. A co-founder of the Emerging Translators Network and a mentor of early career practitioners, she has also been developing her own creative writing practice in recent years. She started off by telling me how she got into translating.
1: After... I finished my German BA. I worked for Reuters for a while, translating updates from the stock exchanges, so for Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And I really loved the process of translation, just not so much the subject matter, very much about stocks and shares and so on. It was around that time, I just felt myself being pulled in a more creative direction. Uh, I did some research and discovered a publication called New Books in German, that promotes German language contemporary writing to publishers in the US and the UK. And I wrote a letter to the editor who was incredibly kind in her response and gave me the opportunity to write a review for them. And then I moved to London around about that time and did a master's in Anglo-German cultural relations, which had a translation module. And through the link with New Books in German and just through being where everything was happening happening publishing-wise, I started doing sample translations for publishers and just started to realise that this was something I really loved. So initially I was quite keen on pursuing a career um, in diplomacy, kind of cultural diplomacy, and the translation was more of a stopgap. But once I realised how creative it was and how enjoyable, I then started pursuing it more intentionally, really. Mm -hmm. Mm,
0: Fantastic. Now, I mean, you you translate from German and Portuguese. Uh, Language Mm -hmm. skills are not actually that easy to come by when you live in the UK. Um, (laughs) There have been a number of frightening reports and, and pronouncements in the last mm. decade or so uh, about how difficult it is for English uh, speakers to acquire a reasonable level of competence in other languages. How did you come to speak such good uh, German and Portuguese? How was it possible for you to um, to use your languages in this
1: way? Very different stories for each of them. With By German, I started doing it at school and I had an incredible teacher. She was very inspiring and I think oh that's often what makes the difference because I did study French at the same time but just didn't click with it in the same way and uh, so the German that led to German A-levels led to university and so on and lots of trips across to Germany like German exchanges that kind of thing so it was very much studying academically forming a connection with the country and then I started spending lots of time in Berlin because I've got quite a few friends there. So I would regularly go over maybe a few times a year and to book fairs around Germany and so on. With Portuguese, it was actually an unexpected life change. I was spending time in South America because I had gotten into Spanish mostly through having a love for salsa dancing when I lived in London. So I listened to a lot of Spanish language music then and decided i wanted to try and improve my spanish to the point where i could translate from that as well so i was over in buenos aires doing spanish school in the mornings and my german translations in the afternoon and then i i met a brazilian at my spanish school and we fell in love and i moved to brazil with him and that so that's how the portuguese happened essentially just being thrown in at the deep end and i was only i was there about 5 years but i was very immersed in the local culture
0: wow gosh so in in the pursuit of one language you end up acquiring a, another
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> the unexpected turns <laughs> that life takes fascinating
0: yeah um, now a lot of people when they talk about translation will use all kinds of imagery to try to convey what it involves um, mm. people talk about ventriloquism or acting there's the babel fish metaphor and when i was writing about it um i i came up with the idea that it was like reading with another person's eyes, almost borrowing another person's eyes to read. Hmm. I was wondering, is there a particular way that you think about it when you're, you know, how would you explain it?
1: In terms of visual imagery, I think I see it quite similarly to how I've always envisaged the process of learning a language. And for me, that was when I first started with German, so I'd have been about 11. I remember looking at pages of the language and initially it felt like this tangle of, of threads that I couldn't really, I could spot the odd word amongst them that I understood, but overall the page felt quite impenetrable. But over time, as I started to understand more of them, it just felt like they settled into place and I could find my way through it more easily. It feels similar to me with the process of translation that a book initially, when I start translating it, it feels like there are so many different layers and threads that I need to gradually unpick. And every time I think I'm there and I've got to the, I don't know, kind of the deepest layer or something, I then realise there's even more. So I think both in terms of language acquisition and translating, I see it as something that initially looks like a a tangle or a thicket or something like that, that I just need to keep working away at until things, until you can kind of see a way through it.
0: Yeah, a tangle tangle of threads. It's it's a really interesting way of talking about it. Because actually a lot of translators who I've spoken to will think about, will talk about it in terms of what they're doing for the reader. But actually, for you, it sounds like a much more internal yeah, you know, you're kind of, almost like writing itself, you're you're finding your way to the story, to the finished product, or is it your reading is, is developing alongside the writing of it? Mm,
1: yeah, I think so. Because we, as translators, I mean, they often say that we end up being the closest reader because the amount of times you read through something and then you're finding these new layers to it. I do think about the reader, particularly with the, once I get to the stages of the edit's, where I try and put the original out of my mind and try and think if I hadn't seen that, how would I respond to this text in its own right? So that's the stage where I'm thinking more about the final reader, but I think in the earlier stages, it is perhaps more internalized in terms of my my finding my way through it.
0: yeah, I mean I know you're you're a big fan of residencies um, and really immersing mm. yourself in in a text. Why do do you think it's so important to be so sort of so submerged, so sort of saturated with with the author's voice in that way? Uh, I
1: think it depends on the project. So I've I've had some where that felt much more necessary than others. One particular one that I did, it was published in early 2020. Actually, it was published in the first week of lockdown, which (laughs) wasn't ideal timing. It was called The Great Homecoming by an Austrian author called Anna Kim. And I was very much immersed in that one for, I would say, a good year and a half, uh, at least maybe two years before. And it was set in the Korean peninsula around about the time of uh, the Korean War and the subsequent decades. And that was very much a subject matter that through translating German, I hadn't come across before in anything more than a superficial way. So it was educating myself about Korean culture, finding out this background information about the war. There was so much to it that I really felt I needed to kind of go away and, and just surround myself with it. I did a residency with the author, which was invaluable in terms of her sharing kind of her experiences of Korean culture in a way that informed the translation for me. But also when I got to the editing stage, I did, I think, about five weeks in Vienna where I just rented this little f- flat. Actually, I got a bursary from the Austrian Cultural Literary Foundation over there. But I I barely saw anyone. It was, I think it was February. It was freezing cold. It was just me and the book for weeks on end. And it, it was full on. But I think it, I needed it in a way because it would have been a very difficult book to do other things alongside but equally I've had others where something's a bit more light-hearted and then I can do that alongside other things in ordinary life.
0: Yeah I mean The Great Home, Homecoming is an extraordinary book isn't it I I really loved reading your translation of it and I, I'm a big admirer of Anna Kim's work in fact she was my Austrian author back during my year of reading the um, world okay. project and, and I amazing. interviewed her briefly over email for for the book that I wrote subsequently and I mean she's a fascinating writer because mm. she um both in that book but also in the book that I read back in 2012 um Frozen Time uh, translated by Michael Mitchell um mm-hmm. she tells the sort of the backside of history almost in her work she explores the stories that mm. we don't comfortably we tend to brush over or the sides of narratives that maybe don't fit with our image of how the world is good and evil, bad, and 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 what's so fascinating about the Great Homecoming, I thought, was it's really it really complicates and muddies the rather polar story we have about North and South Korea, and you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's so uh, so problematic and subtle in that, and to get a grasp on all the threads because it's so much history that it is so little discussed, I think, in the English speaking world must have been a huge challenge and to make it readable and and immersive in the way that you do is it's really impressive
1: thank you I'm really glad you enjoyed it it was uh there was definitely times where I did start to tear my hair out a little bit (laughs) just at the amount of layers there were but in the end I felt um I felt pleased with it in the end so that's really good to hear
0: fantastic now you talked there about working doing a residency with Anna Kim I mean do you often work Very closely with writers, or uh, I'm sure it must vary between projects. But what's your preferred way of of working with writers if you have the choice?
1: I always like to have contact with them if they're open to doing that and if there are questions there. I think, particularly with that kind of book, it was really necessary. I've had others where there's just maybe a few questions, but it's just really nice to be in touch anyway. Um, I did a a work by a Swiss writer who now lives in Iceland a novel called Kalman and it was one of the most enjoyable projects I've worked on it was just a really quirky narrator and the author was so helpful in terms of um, there's certain elements in there about the Icelandic landscape and it being a lockdown year I couldn't at that time go unfortunately to Iceland myself and check things out so I was very much dependent on asking him for those cultural details, uh, but that was a really enjoyable collaboration in terms of being in contact. Yeah, I think it's always nice to be in touch, just because it's you know authors put so much work into these novels, and even if it you don't have many questions, I just think as a translator it is nice to establish that relationship because you are spending a significant period of time, you know, six months perhaps or more immersed in their work. So having that personal connection as well, I find it really rewarding.
0: Mm. Yeah, Calman, is, is, um, you described it on your website as Forrest Gump meets Fargo, which is very intriguing. <laughs> um, I mean, translating humour is, is often held up as one of the most tricky things to do. How, how do you go about sort of trying to carry humour across? And were there any particular challenges in terms of capturing the, the, the tone of that humour in, in the
1: work? With Kalman, it actually felt it was quite swift getting into the narrator's voice, which surprised me because it isn't the kind of voice I've translated before. Uh, But there was something that was just so charming, and yeah, just charming and quirky about it that I actually found. I felt like I'd found the voice quite quickly in a way that just meant I could relax into the project and just really enjoyed it. The whole process was a real joy and. I don't remember there being anything particular. It's just so well written, and I think perhaps the elements of humour were more about the delivery rather than any particular wordplay that might have been complicated linguistically. So uh, that felt quite a, um, a smooth process. Really, there was a novel I did probably a few years before that that was uh, very much kind of kind of a dark humour which was more wordplay based, and I needed to do quite a lot of intense thinking with how to convey things there. Uh, but again, I find those kind of creative challenges really enjoyable. But yeah, I mean, translating humour definitely isn't the easiest of things.
0: Yeah, now I know that for the last few years, you've, you've been writing, uh, doing your own writing as well. Uh, I was wondering, um, I mean, I, it's it's something that often surprises me that more translators don't also write, because I know, I mean, many of our most famous writers in the world uh, were translators, uh, Borges, Mm -hmm. uh, Goethe, you know, many of the the biggest, most sort of internationally renowned writers uh, translated between multiple languages. And and it seems to me a kind of natural fit that if you're sort of channeling other people's work in that way, you would develop your own practice. um, Mm. I mean, you... It was it was relatively uh, sort of in your late thirties that you you picked up your pen and and decided to to try uh, your own work. What what do you think stopped you from doing it sooner? I mean, you as a child, you I think you 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 said um, that you had been writing, but what was it that that stopped you? And, and how did you how do you get past that?
1: I've asked myself this a lot over recent years in terms of what created the shift. I did love writing when I was a child, but I would say I stopped even by my early teens or so. I was still, I was reading constantly. I think once I got into languages, so when I started learning German at 11, I just became obsessed by languages and, and other countries and my plans for discovering them all and so on. And I think once I started publishing translations I know I, I I knew a lot of other translators who did write and it's a question that translators are asked a lot I remember I used to get annoyed and think well no you know this is enough what I'm doing why why would I also have to write um and I wonder now whether part of that was that I wanted to but was afraid to and I was kind of pushing that down and then kind of bristling at it when people asked me the question and and I don't feel by any means that everybody that every translator feels the urge or is suppressing an urge to do it but in my case I think that I may have been and I think in terms of the shift of when that started to happen so yeah I think I was probably maybe about 37 38 uh when I started writing my own stuff again and it was I think predominantly the experiences I had living in Brazil because that led to me journaling again um, for the first time since I was in my early teens and the journaling just gradually evolved into more fictional fragments came in and it got to the point where I really realised that I wanted to try and write but I felt very afraid that I didn't have the imagination for it. I felt that the creativity was there because I know how I approach my translations. But I thought in terms of actually creating a plot, all of that kind of thing, I felt very daunted by it. But in the end, the fear of not trying it became greater than the fear of giving it a go. And then once I started, it was just this incredible feeling of of being in flow, I guess of something else taking over my mind and just feeling like I would just be swept away with this. And I know it's not always like that when we're writing that there's, you know, lots of frustrating moments, but Mm. the knowledge that, that. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. um, And I, I think, you know, there was a little bit of beginner's luck there and that the first story I wrote I felt like I was in flow for most of it and it's only after that to writing subsequent stories and working on my novel in progress that I started to realise that there are many many hours where I would just stare <laughs> in frustration but it just felt worth it for those moments. Now
0: translating is more than simply converting a text from one language to another isn't it, it involves increasingly these days i think a great deal of other things activism mm. networking being part of other organizations and i know that quite often translators and, and that you too are instrumental in bringing works across from other languages and um, by doing samples and by uh, is sometimes by advocating for for texts with publishers and trying to find homes for them. there have been a couple. There's in fact there's been a project that's that's uh, been a success in this area for you, isn't there? Um, Blutbuch, how did that happen and what did it involve to get that English home?
1: So Blutbuch is a debut novel by the Swiss writer Kim de Lorison and in 2022 uh, it won the German and Swiss book prizes which is really incredible and it's a really incredible novel that looks at identity and those kind of in tangible things that we inherit, Um, so kind of things we carry from family, genders, stories, inherited trauma and so on, exploration of language, the narrator's gender fluid and when I was asked to do the sample by the German publisher I looked at the extract of the text and I thought I have no idea how I can do this justice because it's going to be a huge creative challenge but I felt incapable of saying no because i just thought if you know why am i doing this you know why am i a translator if i don't do these things that excite me so i said yes without knowing how to solve all of these issues in it and it's probably the most fun i've had translating since i started it it pushed me and challenged me and then I was once it I had a feeling it was going to do really well the, the you know, the original text and then seeing it get nominated and win those awards. Obviously, very, very happy for the author. And I started uh, promoting it to publishers here. But by the time I'd even started that, really, it had picked up its own momentum through the prizes. And the American publishers who bought it got in touch with me. And asked if I would like to do the whole project, which obviously I I jumped at. But that is, like you said, it's such a big part of it. It, It's not just doing the translations. It's being in touch with the German publishers or or Austrian or Swiss publishers. And having those relationships, really. So New Books in German that I mentioned earlier do such an amazing job of bringing together translators, uh, the English language publishers, the German language publishers, and it's everything working together, really, because I, I don't think a publisher will ever take something on just based on one person's endorsement or opinion. But it's when you've got a, you know, kind of a network of people that are working towards the same goal. And I, I really wanted to see this book kind of brought into English and for the author's voice to reach other readers, and I, w- I very much wanted to be the person to do that as the translator. But even if it hadn't have been me, I would really have wanted to see it come over here. So there's a huge amount to it. I would say translating itself is probably a few hours a day. The rest of it is connecting with people, and and I love that about it because I find I need the balance in my work that just translating or just being me in the computer day after day. I would find too isolating so it's conversations with other people it's going to the book fairs and events and working on things together that makes it all exciting.
0: Mm. And part of that is um, mentoring isn't it I mean you you mentor a number of other translators what, what does that involve?
1: So I started offering mentoring at the beginning of 2020 when I had a writing residency postponed due to the pandemic and it was something I'd been thinking about doing for about a year before that. I had really benefited from mentoring at the start of my career. So the British Centre for Literary Translation and the Translators Association had a mentoring scheme which is now, uh, there's now the British Centre for Literary Translation together with NCW, the National Centre for Writing. So my mentor was Lynn Marvin and we worked on a particular text together but she also just gave me a lot of guidance and tips about starting a freelance literary translation career in general. And I just think that that's the thing, it's not just about having somebody there who can critique a translation for you and give you encouragement in terms of how you're approaching it from a kind of a linguistic stylistic point of view it's very much about the whole world of literary translation and if you want to start doing that as a career or part of a career um I think it can feel very very confusing from the outside and when I started doing it I mean when I moved to London for my MA I had no contacts whatsoever in the publishing world so it was very much just trying to meet as many people as I could I did lots of internships back then asked lots of questions so it what I try to offer with the mentoring it's helping people to figure out what kind of working life suits them as a person. Because we're all so different, we all have different personalities, different work rhythms, different ambitions, and there's no kind of one size fits all with it. So I like to try and help people figure out what their ideal working day would be, how much of that would be translating, what do they want to balance it with, and then using that as a foundation, then kind of offering tips. So for example, a lot of people, early career translators, get quite disheartened when they spend a lot of time on pitches. Uh, So pitching books to publishers that may not be taken up, because pitching is kind of a needle in the haystack thing, really. I have on occasion pitched things, but very rarely over a course of 15 years. And what I find more rewarding is building relationships with german language publishers and doing samples for them um because that way you're you're getting the experience you're doing the work you're getting paid for it and it can sometimes hopefully lead to a commission to do the whole book
0: it's really practical though because i mean i think this is something that i often when i've mentored other writers um this practical side is is something that's often overlooked i think and actually similar to you what i often tell people is you know it's important to be honest with yourself about what you need mm. um so people need different levels of stability and um, they need different rhythms um mm. some people are p- completely comfortable with the idea of not knowing what money is coming into your bank account from one month to the next others need to have a regular base level of income and say so, and that's okay and you can find mm. a way to do that but you know it's kind of being honest with yourself about what you need rather than cleaving to this romantic image of what the creative life involves isn't
1: it I think think
0: that's really important to be practical and, and sort of yeah honest with yourself in that way
1: yeah and it's an ongoing process really because what suits you at a particular time may not suit you in kind of three four years time so I find I've needed to constantly shift the way I construct my working life in order to make sure it's still working for me in a way. The other nice thing with mentoring is that when I work with somebody for a while and and get to know them and their work, it then means that if a publisher approaches me for a project that I don't have the capacity to do, I then have the confidence to recommend somebody that I've been working with, knowing that they will do a good job, but also feeling that I'm helping pass work to other people. So that's been a nice thing about it as well.
0: Mm. What is it about translating that you love and that, is, that makes it the thing that you, you enjoy spending
1: so much of your time on? I think initially it was my awareness that there were so many incredible German-language books um, and books in other languages, therefore, too, that weren't reaching English-language readers. So I felt that I wanted to play a role, however small, and helping to bring more into English and then I think once I actually started doing it it's the capacity for learning I think about the world because I've learned so many things that I probably wouldn't have encountered if I were doing something different just you know each book has this whole new world in it it just constantly surprises me I think and I like that surprise element.
0: That was Jamie Lee Searle in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Jamie on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 443, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 444, in How I Write, we hear from Royal Literary Fund fellows about their favourite places to work, taking in everywhere from garden sheds libraries and cafes, to trains and foreign hotel rooms. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.